Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. In terms of process, the parliamentary staff are incredible. You know, talking to the clerks and people who've been here for a long time, so willing to give advice. And then you can imagine <laughs> being based in the ACT, just so many people who have worked in politics for so long and are now retired and have leaned really heavily on them, people who are willing to volunteer their time to come in. So, yeah, really trying to make use of people with expertise that, that don't necessarily have a, I don't know, a vested interest. They just want to see things done better. They know what it's like. They know what the pressures are like. And then talking to some you know, f- former politicians on, on both sides of politics who've, who've been in here and, and done it. Hello, lovely people of podcasts. Welcome to the show. Uh, you are on Australian Politics and you are with Catherine Murphy. And we are at the end of the parliamentary sitting year for 2022, which seems astonishing that we have survived this long and got there, but we have. And uh, there's no better person, I think, to have in the pod cave this week than David Pocock. David uh, played a key role in the Senate, really, over the last six months on a range of issues, uh, but particularly over this very frenetic final push to the end. And I just, uh, we're going to introduce David a bit more to listeners because he's still new in politics, but I want to start with last night. To be clear, we're recording on Friday morning. By that, I mean Thursday night, where the Senate passed a couple of big pieces of legislation uh, important to you. One was the Territory Rights Bill and the other was the Industrial Relations Package. So I was in the chamber for quite a lot of that. I just wanted to get sense of that before we spoke. So what were your impressions? That's sort of your first big sort of last Senate kind of, well, it wasn't an all-nighter in the end, but you went pretty late. It's been a yeah, massive month and, <laughs> and then a, a really big week. Last night with territory rights, it, it's a conscience vote for the major parties. Yeah. And you know, a number of senators commented on this. It seems like when you have a conscience vote, you get senators actually debating the issue. Yeah, you do. And it mm, they're always the best. They quite are. respectful. Mm. Yeah, they're always the there best. There was a last ditch attempt to essentially add an amendment that would have <laughs> meant that the repeal of of the Andrews bill which stops the t- the territories from debating legislating voluntary is dying, we would have had added conditions yes. would have effectively mean that we couldn't do it. So 
uh, there was a little bit of uncertainty around that. In the end, that went down and then it didn't even get forced to a vote at the end, which I think mm. shows just how much people across Australia's views have changed when it comes to voluntary assisted dying. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And in, I mean, obviously this has been a 25-year campaign, but it's in a fairly short period of time, I think, that that we've sort of got to the point where people have reached, or, or a number of people, we shouldn't generalise, a number of people have sort of reached an accommodation with it. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't entirely follow that amendment, but I could see that there was, this was an amendment moved by uh, the CLP, Senator Jacinda Price, and I could see there was a reasonable, well, a low-level degree of agitation in the chamber. But anyway, as you say, it trundled ahead. And then there was the marathon filibuster by Michaelia Cash on the Industrial Relations Bill. Well, I suppose it's not a filibuster to the extent that it was more signalling, wasn't it, to the base. The Liberal Party wanted to let everybody know that they had opposed this package right until the last. Tell me, during that long debate, and I, I don't know how many hours it went for, but it was a number, did you hear anything at all in the, over the course of that debate that changed your mind? Obviously, you sought some concessions on that package, but over that long debate, did you hear anything that made you sort of sitting up the end of the chamber think, oh, God, have I done the right thing? No, a lot of, a lot of the things I heard were the arguments that were put to me while I was making my mind up mind up on yeah. this. And, you know, at, at, when this was introduced, I flagged that I thought that it was too rushed. I moved a motion in the Senate to push out the timeline a little bit to give particularly the crossbench more time to get across it. Yeah. And we lost that vote by one. Mm-hmm. So decided that I'd just sort of knuckle down and mm, try crack and on it with done. it and, you know, heard all those arguments on both sides my sense is talking to most people that with these issues that become hyper-partisan, people want some sort of middle road. Uh-huh. And so my focus was really trying to come back to the policy and get away from the politics of it. And clearly we have to get wages moving for workers in Australia. I think we also need safeguards for small businesses mm. in recognition that a lot of them have struggled through COVID. Yeah. And the challenges of running a small business, the last thing you need is a whole bunch of more onerous things for you to comply with and and do. And in the end, the government gave a lot more concessions than I thought they would. Mm. And based on my consultations with people in the ACT, I thought we got to a point that really does strike that middle ground, that balance, and represents what people in the ACT have been telling me they want. And so based on that, I I backed it clearly unpopular with big Mm. business groups and a number of coalition and One Nation senators and absolutely copped it in the chamber for a couple of days, but happy to happy to wear that. I'm I'm happy with my decision. Okay. And you've you've said a couple of intriguing things about your process, which I want to return to, but I promised the listeners we would introduce you properly to them for people who don't know you. Obviously, rugby fans know you and uh, people who are active in climate and environmental campaigning, I suspect, know you because you have a history in relation to that. So, you know, without you don't have to do the entire log cabin David, we don't need your entire <laughs> high school yearbook or anything else. But in in a few sentences, introduce yourself to the listeners. Who are you? Where have you come from? Um, and, you know, and why have you entered politics? 
Sure. Um, Self-reflection. Well, my name's David Pocock. <laughs> Self-reflection, always a favourite. Um, I'm now a senator for the ACT. I grew up in a, well, just outside a small town in Zimbabwe uh, on a farm. I've got two younger brothers. Mm-hmm. And in the early 2000s, things really went downhill in Zimbabwe. The, the government undertook this big land reform program. My family were kicked off our farm. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, mum was a qualified teacher and we managed to get visas to Australia right. under the skilled migration program. Mm-hmm. So I arrived in Brisbane in 2002, finished high school there, and my first year out of school got a contract to play rugby. And so that was a childhood dream. Mm-hmm. Did that for 15 seasons and loved it. Yeah, I represented Australia, went to a few World Cups. Well, and kept the team, didn't you? I mean, <laughs> for, for, for a little bit. Uh, I guess I'd always been interested in things outside of rugby and really found it a way to, I guess, try and stay grounded mm-hmm. if you can. I think it's there's probably some analogies to politics where you can live in this little bubble where mm-hmm. you know, the people around you think what you're doing is a big deal Yeah, um, and it's easy to buy into the hype. Yeah. And so having things outside of rugby, whether it was involved in community development work back in Zimbabwe or some conservation stuff, uh, some some climate work gave me an interest outside of rugby, and I'd never thought I would get into politics. Mm-hmm. I was kind of looked at it and thought, well, I think I can do more outside of the system. Yeah, and I tried to do that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, finished rugby at the start of COVID and went back to Zimbabwe to work on a community development conservation project, and that was going well. But just kept getting hassled by people in Canberra saying <laughs> it was sort of a voices of group yes. off the model of um, Kathy McGowan and Helen Haynes and Indi saying, you know, we think there's a path for an independent in the Senate. We're doing all these kitchen table con- conversations and your name keeps coming up. Mm. Initially, I just thought, no, not, not for me. After a few months, thinking more about the opportunity and you know, the big issues that we're facing, the huge challenges we're facing, I thought, well, this is probably something I'd re- I'll regret if I don't have a crack mm-hmm. at it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to sit, sit around after the election or in a few years' time thinking, I wonder what could have happened. Yeah. So I thought, well, I've been saying we need different voices in politics. I've been saying I've been frustrated with politics in Australia. Mm. So I should probably have give, a it, go. give it a crack. Give it a crack. And, yeah, here we are. And the rest is history. Yeah, it's sort of funny. Um, obviously, David uh, took an ACT Senate spot and defeated an incumbent, Zed Zizeldra. Um, I must confess, looking at your campaign through the national lens, I, I thought, oh, well, look, you've got great name recognition, so that that really helps. But obviously it had been, you know, in terms of that Senate spot, it had been one Liberal, one Labor for the entire history of representation. I thought, oh, God, maybe he gets up, maybe he doesn't, until I had this moment where a Liberal MP, no longer in the Parliament, rang me at one point during the campaign and said, oh, how do you think Pocock's going? And I said, oh, I think he's all right. It all seems pretty solid. And he said, oh, God, if he wins, can you introduce me afterwards? (laughs) (laughs) Which was so funny. And I thought, oh, because this was a Liberal, and I thought, oh, God, I think you're going to (laughs) win. Which was was a funny, just a funny thing. I mean, obviously this person, mad rugby fan, right, mad fan of yours. Um, But anyway, I just thought at that point, okay, maybe, because the big question about you is because you're a very progressive person, whether or not traditional liberal supporters would 
think you're too progressive, basically. But anyway, that's just a funny anecdote, which I've never told you. So there you go. We've we've told you and I've shared it with the listeners. Okay, so that's you. Now, I'm very interested because I have very limited uh, visibility over it. Obviously, you've come from outside into politics. You've been in the the public limelight, so obviously having cameras in your face is not a particularly new experience for you, but obviously the business of legislating is a new business for you and the business of how this parliament operates is a new business for you. Have you got any mentors? Whose advice are you seeking? Like, you know, because there's a, mil- there's a history of Senate kingmakers, obviously. There's a few people you could draw on, potentially, if you wanted to ask advice. I'm quite interested. How are you navigating you know, learning the procedural stuff you need to know, but also assessing issues, right? Because as you say, like the whole assessment of issues is here's a piece of legislation. There's this kind of conga line of interest groups then come streaming through the doors, right? I want to know how you identify, you know, what you're going to seek to add to whatever the legislation is. Am I being clear? Give us a sense of that. Well, sitting down in, when was it, January with you know, a bunch of people in the ACT talking about how how do we do this? My sense was we've got to find a way to try and make politics about people, mm. which sounds ridiculous because politics is about is people, and should be about people, but sometimes clearly isn't. there's yeah. this disconnect. And so, my whole sort of campaign policy platform was essentially crowdsourced, just based on thousands of conversations with people that I and and volunteers had. And clearly it resonated. And the thing I'm really enjoying about being an independent is being free to say what I'm hearing from people. Mm. And uh, that is a real, I think, blessing, but it also comes with the added responsibility of being across a huge number of issues because on the crossbench your vote is consequential. Mm. And so we've really had to find processes for getting across issues Depending on on the issue and how big it is, you know, each piece of legislation has a varies in sort of size mm, and scope. Sure, we've had a bunch of roundtables mm-hmm. where we'll invite experts, just people from the community who are passionate about the issue, people with lived experience, and over a few hours talk it through. Mm-hmm. I found that a great way of of getting in a short period of time a sense of what people are thinking, mm-hmm. and then from the expert poking some of the holes in the in the policy and. Yep and trying to look at potential amendments. Yep. But then on bigger stuff, really, it is a lot more about consultation. Mm. I've been blown away by how many lobbyists there are in this building. Oh, I know. Yeah, well, just, welcome to Canberra. Yeah. Well, well, not welcome to Canberra, but I mean, welcome to this. It's like it's like an aquarium, this place. Like I, I do, I think of it like an aquarium, right? Yeah. There's all of these different species of fish sort of swimming around uh-huh. the joint all the time. Uh-huh. There was a period during COVID when all of those people were not permitted in the building. Must have been strange. Well, it was quite good actually. <laughs> yeah. It was actually quite good. Uh, but uh, but in the general course of things, yes, you've encountered the entire government affairs lobbying interest group business, right? So that's something. Yeah, in some ways it, it can be very useful yeah getting advice from the peak bodies and industry groups i think you've really got to weigh that against what everyday australians want what people in our communities want yeah because when you just have those voices i think you you miss out on what what's good for people mm. not necessarily for industry groups mm. 
So it's interesting that you're balancing both of those, right, that what interest groups say and what you, what the community is saying. You've got mechanisms to do that. What about, um, and you, look, the answer might be I've got no mentors, but I'm, I'm interested. Like have you sought anybody's advice? Because I'm asking you this, David, because you are the Brian Harradine of this parliament, right? I mean, it seems an odd comparison given that you and Brian Harradine wouldn't have much in common, but you are a critical kingmaker in this parliament and literally you've just come in and boom, like, the, the, you know, there's been no apprenticeship for you. You're just, you're in the middle of it and you've got to work this out as you go. Do you see, you know, any other kingmakers on the horizon that are helpful or even people in the parliament that you're seeking advice from or are you just determined to make your own way with it? In terms of process, the parliamentary staff are incredible. You know, talking to the clerks and people who've been here for a long time, so willing to give advice. Yep. And then you can imagine... <laughs> Being based in the ACT, just so many people who have worked in politics for so long and are now retired and have leaned really heavily on them, mm -hmm. you know, people who are willing to volunteer their time to mm -hmm. come in, either talk through some procedural stuff mm -hmm. or, or do some work on policy. So, yeah, really trying to make use of people with expertise that, that don't necessarily have a, I don't know, a vested interest. They just want yeah. to see things done yeah. better. They know what it's like. They know what the pressures are like. And then talking to some yeah, f former politicians on on both sides of politics mm -hmm. who've who've been in here and, and done it. Anyone particularly helpful? No one sort of on, on a really ongoing yeah. basis, but on yeah. certain issues, you know, I'll give someone a call. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think that's the other thing I've realised with this being a senator is you get such incredible access to people. Yeah. Basically call almost anyone mm, yeah. and they're willing to mm. to chat. And so really trying to use that mm -hmm. to be able to, you know, serve serve the ACT better. And yeah, I've I've got so much to learn. And that's one of the things I'm loving about this is you're essentially a beginner again. Mm. And you've got to learn all of these all of these new skills and get better at getting across policy and, and trying to communicate it better. Mm. And for people who did follow me while I was playing rugby, one of the things that has been quite satisfying is after I finished playing rugby, I'd often joke with my wife, Emma, that mm -hmm. I'd spent thousands and thousands of hours working on these skills that were, are now totally useless, <laughs> you know, totally, <laughs> totally redundant. I'm never going to like, you know, try and get into a ruck and steal yep. the ball again. Yeah. But I spent so much of my life trying to get better at that. But being in politics now and working in a small team, I'm realising just how much uh, sport and professional sport is a good training ground for working in a high-pressure environment, mm -hmm. uh, you know, working in a small team, really trying to work towards these sort of shared goals and, and um, yeah, focus on the bigger thing you're doing rather than yourself. But also, though, on your analogy of the ruck and stealing the ball, I mean, you are doing that. You're just doing it in a different theatre and you're, different do, you're doing it sort of like it's not a physical thing yeah. you're doing now. It's an, it's a sort of game of uh -huh. chess in a way where yeah. you are sort of, you know, getting into the ruck and stealing the ball. Okay, that's all interesting. Now, I just want to push forward just on a couple of issues because uh, the parliamentary year has ended uh, and given the year we've all had, you know, campaigns, elections, a couple of budgets, everything else, everyone's exhausted. So hooray for the end of the parliamentary year just for five minutes, right? But the political year is far from over. We've got two issues uh, coming up over the next few weeks that I know will be very important to you given your 
our interests and also incredibly important to the government in all kinds of ways. One of them is the whole negotiations around the safeguard mechanism. And if you don't know what that is, guys, uh, that's just a mechanism for pushing down pollution from uh, heavy emitters. We're going to basically have some first steps from the government on that front. Also, the uh, EPBC regulations, which again is, again, if you don't speak Canberra, is just environmental regulations, which the government is seeking to overhaul. Now, let's let's just do them in turn. So EPBC, um, there's been a whole debate leading up to this about whether or not a climate trigger needs to be inserted into the legislation. Do you think the government will do that? And what are you looking for in terms of the government response that will demonstrate to you that, that it's serious, that they're serious about actually doing something about environmental degradation? Well, clearly we have to do something. Our laws aren't working. And the Graham Samuel, who did the review of our current environment laws, was scathing. Mm. They're not fit for purpose. They're not protecting species. And you look around, so many of our, our iconic species are now endangered. So I really hope the government has a strong response. This is something that Australians want to see action on. Mm. The climate trigger is a tricky one. Mm -hmm. Graham Samuel left it out of his recommendations. Yep. But my understanding and, and in, in talking with him, he believes that you know, that is best situated or could be situated elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But we currently don't have that. And clearly, if we're going to protect a whole bunch of amazing species like, you know, your gliders and some of your um, smaller possums. They're very heat sensitive. Mm. So climate change has to factor into decision-making, you know, not to mention the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah. Whether or not the government is willing to go there, I, I don't know. So I, just sort of listening to you, right, like you don't necessarily, it sounds like you've had a conversation with Graham Samuel and it sounds like you're not necessarily wedded to a, you know, a particular climate trigger per se. It sounds to me like you're open about what that is, but your point is we have to inject climate into these assessments. Is that right? Well, I absolutely believe there should be a climate trigger okay. in environmental there you laws. Go. Yep. It's it, it's it's no good not having something that is going to drive species and, and whole ecosystems mm. to extinction. Yeah. I'm not sure the government is going to do it, mm. but we've got to really push to ensure that whatever new env environmental laws we come up with are fit for purpose. And yep. then when species are listed as threatened or endangered, we can mobilise the resources necessary and have the, the, the plans in place Currently, there's just so many holes. Yeah, uh, it's it's it, it's not working. So we need to rethink how we do it. And you know, the, the big thing that has been missing from the conversation is funding. Mm. Whether we like it or not, this is going to cost money. Yep. But it's so worth it. Yep. In the scheme of things, it's not a lot of money. Okay. So a climate trigger of some description and proper funding is what you're looking for. Okay. And have you had any discussions with Tanya Plibersek, the Environment Minister? Because I think the response to Samuel is close. I'm not sure how close, but I don't think it's far away. Have you had any preliminary discussions so that you can telegraph to her what you'll be seeking? I've had, I've had a few different discussions with uh, Minister Plibersek some around what future environmental laws could or should look like. Yeah. Uh, the things that I'm really interested in in seeing in there and working with, with the government on. 
also around funding during estimates, I, I, I tried to do some digging on funding, but then also inv- invasive species. Mm-hmm. That's, some, that's something that we have to get on top of in Australia. We have to have a much more uh, sort of cohesive plan with sustained effort because invasive species are just such a huge threat to mm. biodiversity mm. and also to, to agriculture. So there's there's huge benefits on, on putting some more effort into that. Yeah, okay. So, um, but again, you don't, I'm trying to work out whether your, your gut feeling is that they're not going to go far enough. That's what it sounds like to me based on these conversations. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the, the, the thing we, I've been, I don't know why I've been surprised, uh, but you hear so much in the Senate is just blaming the other side of politics sure. for yeah. a whole number of issues. Mm-hmm. But let's be frank, both major parties have overseen our current environmental laws. Both of them have overseen a catastrophic decline in biodiversity across this incredible continent. We're one of um, a few megadiverse countries. And so we have a responsibility to look after that. Mm. And so I really hope that the government will rise above what we've seen from previous governments Mm. and make the case for why we should be putting world-class environmental laws in place and then properly funding them. There was a few years ago a group of the most eminent uh, environmental scientists in Australia did a paper and they worked out probably cost us around $1.7 billion in, in, I think it was 2019 money Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to halt extinction. Mm. We've got a government that's come out and said, we're going to halt extinction. Huge, bold statement. statement. Yeah. And then I think committed an extra $100 million (laughs) in funding. (laughs) So that's a pretty big gap. Yeah, not good. Uh, And, you know, we're hearing about biodiversity markets. We, We don't have much detail about that. Um, it does raise some serious red flags, but yeah, we'll wait. We'll wait and wait see and what see. the detail is okay. and, and keep pushing. No, no, no. There, there's some good signals there. I appreciate it. Now, in terms of the safeguard, this is sort of where the rubber's going to hit the road on the on the whole emissions reduction task. Now, I mean, the government will do some of this via regulation, uh, but there is a crediting bill, obviously, has mm-hmm. been brought forward. I think it went into the House this week. Yep. I think Early that's right. This week. Yep. And again, um, we, we saw Chris Bowen's first climate statement this week. What are you looking for in terms of discussions around the safeguard? What are sort of minimum requirements for you? Well, the, the problem with the safeguard is it's the safeguard mechanism, it's so damn complicated. Mm. That there's just so much wiggle room and and opportunity to fudge yes. things in there, and we've seen that in the past. Yes, where it it hasn't brought down emissions. It's not doing what it says it is should be doing. Yes, and that, you know, that's the problem we're in Australia because climate has been so politicised. Rather than having one overarching climate policy that would ideally be around a price on carbon, mm. we've got all of these different policies and we've really got to get them all right. Yes. So, you know, the the little details of the safeguard mechanism are one thing. For me, at the moment, my focus is really on the process. Mm. And I've got serious concerns about the government introducing the start of safeguard reform mm. before the Chubb review, 
which yes. is looking into the valid, but the validity of credits, credits, yes, which are going to make up a big part of of the safeguard mechanism and how companies can, you know, I guess, offset yes, and how we're incentivizing companies to reduce their emissions over time. Yep, that review's due end of the month, mm-hmm. and we've already got safeguard yeah, mechanism yeah, ledge, ledge in the, legislation. Yeah. So, so that worries you a bit. It really, it really of... does. We have to get the safeguard mechanism right. You know, the state of the climate report, we're, we're not on track for 43%. Nope. And we know that 43% is, for a developed country, doesn't cut it. Mm. We've, got to be, we've got to be doing more. Mm. So... There's a huge amount of work to do to do here. Yeah, well, this is why I wanted to look forward at these couple of things at the risk of depressing you and the listeners. <laughs> like there's a lot, there is a really big body of work to do that will start to happen between now and Christmas and will really accelerate in the first quarter of next year. Okay, well, some helpful signals there. Thank you. I just want to end uh, with a couple of questions. Just uh, put your sporting hat back on for a minute. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know. It's fine. Um, look, the Greens say they've got support for a parliamentary inquiry into concussion in sport, which has been a big issue globally and, and an issue that Guardian Australia's done a lot of work on. Do you want to be involved in that inquiry is the first question. And also, just more generally, are you concerned that the current concussion protocols in sport are not fit for purpose, that, you know, they're just not doing the job and that we don't have transparency over whether players are being effectively managed? Clearly, con- concussion is a big Issue. It's something that we should be putting more attention on and effort into understanding, and and that is one of the issues for all of the sports that are grappling with it. Is that you know, despite having billionaires trying to set up colonies on Mars, we still don't know that much about concussion in the brain. Mm. <laughs> There's a huge amount that we still have to learn. Yeah, and yeah, it, it probably does warrant an inquiry. But I'm really keen to ensure that that inquiry is used in the right way to bring together all of the information and, and you know, potentially have a coherent, a more coherent understanding across all the sports. At mm-hmm. the moment, it is quite siloed in the approach. I say that, but also acknowledge that there are there is some a lot of work being done within the sports to deal with this. Contact sports recognise this is a big issue, mm. something that they're, they're they're grappling with, and just in my time playing professional rugby from what, 2006 to 2020, yeah, it improved out of sight. When I started, it really wasn't wasn't a thing, and you still mm-hmm. really had that culture of oh, it's it's nothing, just get on with it. Now there are a lot of lot more safeguards in place, right? right. Which there needs to be. Mm. But, but are you concerned? I'm just sort of trying to interpret your, your your statement in terms of it being siloed. Are you concerned that some some sports are doing okay with it, but others may not be? Is that what is that what you're worried about? Well, this this clearly not a uniform approach, which in some ways is maybe not a bad thing. Each each sport is working on it, uh, and I'm sure there is some cross you know sport collaboration. Mm. But I think it's really looking at what's happening in Australia, what's happening around the world, and coming up with the best practice, and look, looking at gaps in in the research. You know, a lot of the measures for whether or not you are concussed in a game are very subjective. Ah, yeah, right. It's it comes up to you know how, how you're feeling, whether you can pass a test, remember some words. Uh-huh. It's a bit like the Donald Trump. 
thing where <laughs> yeah. you sort of say, the cognitive you know, test. Yeah, what know. was it? Man, woman, TV, TV. something. Yeah, yes, right. yeah. Okay. You're, you're essentially doing that, <laughs> right? And yeah, I think most players will sail through it. And then the last question is, do you have any other symptoms? And you're you're putting a lot of onus on a player, yeah, often right. young players who are just wanting to desperately want to get back to make on the it. field. Yeah, right. So, and I know there's a lot of work being done on objective measures, eye tracking, balance. Uh, potentially, uh, there's talk of blood tests. Oh yeah, right. But you know, this is this is where it, it needs to go, and yeah, potentially an inquiry could be useful to bring all that together. Okay. So so uh, so you would be part of an inquiry is that uh, again I'm just seeking to understand you correctly. I'll be honest there's been so much going on <laughs> that I haven't even I've, You haven't focused I on did, it. I did I did speak to Lydia Thorpe and the mm-hmm. Greens about it mm-hmm. and said to them, yeah, I, I as I think it's how you use an inquiry. Yes. An inquiry for inquiry's sake is is I don't think a good thing, but if it's really targeted and it is useful for sports and, um, you know, scientists in this area and researchers, then great. Yeah. But I certainly don't want to don't want it to become my inquiry. Yes. Oh, no, I, okay, now I understand what you're saying. Okay, so you've, uh, but, uh, yeah, you you would participate, but you don't want it, you, you're seaking other, um, more focuses isn't even a word, but you're, <laughs> you're, your attention's elsewhere, but you, but you're, a, you're an active participant in the inquiry, you know, if it comes to pass. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm sure I'll have some sort of, some sort of role. Yes. <laughs> I sense there's something here I don't understand. Are you concerned that if you, that you'll become the focus of it? Is that what you're worried about? Because that, that is one of the concerns, okay. you know, having played now rugby, I've got you. I don't want this to become about me. I think it, it could be useful. Yep. But we'll wait and see what the what the terms of reference okay. are. Okay, gotcha. Now that's good. Okay, um, I can see that yeah, you are concerned for obvious reasons that you will become a focal point in this inquiry. But. Yeah. You're not opposed to the inquiry. No. Anyway, and there's some interesting observations there for sports fans and, and I learned some things there. I honestly don't know how concussion is assessed during in matches because, you know, I'd have no hand-eye <laughs> coordination, so I've got no idea. Anyway, thank you, David. It's been a really busy uh, week, so I'm very glad you made the time uh, to speak to me and to the listeners of the pod. Uh, thank you to you guys for listening and for for bearing with us the whole, entire parliamentary year. Um, and it's been a hell of a year, hasn't it? So thank you for that. We really do appreciate it. And I love the feedback I get on the pod all the time. Uh, thank you to Alison Chan, who is producing. I also want to thank Jordan Beasley, who is a cadet at Guardian Australia, who prepared some of the research for this conversation. So I'm grateful uh, to Jordan for her efforts. And uh, to Molly Glassy, who's the EP of the show. We'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.